Welcome to The Growing Edge, a podcast to explore how life forever invites us to grow into new challenges, new adventures, and new opportunities. I'm Carrie Newcomer. I'm Parker Palmer, and you're invited to join us here, growing toward the light even in times of darkness. To the words and To us and how we live between the words. Carrie, it's good to be back with you on this second Growing Edge podcast, and we have a new question for September 1st. I think it came to us rather quickly. It's the one we want to pose to our audience and to to the folks who chime in on our conversation page on the website. It goes like this. It's September, the start of the school year. For many kids, it's an exciting, growing-edge moment and scary at the same time. When you've felt afraid on the growing edge of your adult life, what has helped you walk into your fear toward what excites you? What helps you keep fear from blocking your next steps toward your deep gladness? I'm wondering, Carrie, what you recall from those days of yore when you were standing on the corner waiting for the school bus the way kids in my neighborhood are right now. Yeah, the school year. It was always this really um, exciting moment. I really loved school. I was one of those kids that was at the bookmobile taking out every book that they would let me take out all summer long. So I was always excited for the school year. And at the same time, you know, there's that trepidation. It's going to be a new teacher. You might have new classmates. Um, You didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. So, you know, it's that that paradox, which I I think we we knew as children at school, but we also kind of know as adults because there's always these moments when we are excited mm-hmm. and yet at the same time going, oh, here it goes. <laughs> so, so Parker, how about you? I mean, what about, what about school for you? Well, my memories of the olden days are pretty dim. Um, you know, I'm approaching <laughs> 80, and that may be the reason, but actually my memories of the olden days have been dim since I was about 20. <laughs> uh, but what I do know is that... Um, that I've, I've carried that mix of uh, excitement and anxiety or fear well into my adult life, certainly into college and graduate school, uh, about which I do have a few memories. Um, I was the first in my family to, to go to college. And hmm. I think as a result of that, I always felt like I didn't belong there, even uh-huh. though I, I did pretty well in terms of grades and all of that stuff. But I, I, I felt like kind of a fraud. I felt like if, if they found out how dumb I was, they'd throw me out. <laughs> I learned later in working with folks in higher education that it, it's a culture that makes everybody feel dumb. It makes everybody feel fraudulent. Mm. But I was certainly afflicted with uh, that you know, particular um, mental disorder. And, and I've carried that same mix of fear and excitement into, into every step I've taken as an adult, and that includes making podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Well. There aren't a lot of 80-year-olds making podcasts, and I know why. It's kind of scary, this new frontier. But um, back in the day when I was making you know pretty radical 
career decisions, what some people would have called bad career moves. For example, getting a PhD at Berkeley and at the end of the 60s, but looking around me and seeing a society on fire with racial injustice and war and so forth, and becoming a community organizer instead of becoming a professor um, in Washington, D.C., um, people would ask me, why are you doing this? Why are you throwing away your, your career opportunities mm -hmm. now that you have the Ph.D. in hand? And, you know, all I could ever say about that when I was speaking honestly was, I really don't know why. I can't give you a good rationale. <clears throat> all I know is that I can't not do it. And I think that motivation, that sort of soul-deep feeling that this is something I can't not do more than I'm wildly enthusiastic about throwing mm -hmm. away my career um, has has been with me for a, a very long time, and it's propelled me through fear uh, into new possibilities. And at, at this age, I'm I'm awfully glad I followed it. So uh, let me flip that question back to you. Has your adult path been that way, Carrie? Yeah, and I uh, that phrase, you know, it was the thing I could not not do. I've heard you say that before. That true vocation is the thing you cannot not do. And, you know, music was like that for me. I, um, I didn't go to college for music. I, I actually went to school for visual art. Um, I was chalking up all the safe and secure paths that you could do. Visual art, check. Folk singing, check. I was getting mm -hmm. all those down. No, um, but, you know, jokes aside, I, I think uh, I got a degree in visual art and then a, a degree to teach. And I think I did that because I wasn't ready to risk what I loved the most yet. I think sometimes we get ready to risk the thing that we love the most. And it, it took a little while for me to get there. But, you know, all through college, I was singing in coffee houses and restaurants and bars and bowling alleys. I think I sang at like maybe garage sales. I mean, I sang everywhere. And after college, it was music. It was really music that was calling me. And I had no idea what that would look like. Like I was going to be a uh, full-time, uh, make my life as a singer-songwriter from the middle of Indiana. You know, I had no idea what that would look like and if mm. there would be mm. a real opportunity for me to do that. But it was the thing I could not, not do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and it was, it was scary kind of stepping forward with that mm. um, you know, particularly financial kind of risk involved too. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're saying that you take risks like that because you love something so much, you can't not do it. I I have this theory that being courageous, courage has absolutely nothing to do with being fearless. I think that courage has everything to do with loving something or someone so much, you will brave what's really scary about it. I mean, that's yeah, my definition, yeah. my personal definition of courage. I think there are a lot of parents and grandparents who know that, the, the ferocity of love they have for their kids or their grandkids. You know, you'd, you'd throw yourself in front of a speeding train if you had to, to sa save their lives. Sometimes that applies also to vocation, to this mm -hmm. sense of being called to this work or that. I, I'd love to tell a story or two about 
that in my own life. But before I do that, you just spoke of singing. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if I could ask you to sing a little bit of You Can Do This Hard Thing. Um, Oh. that's, That's a song that people really love. I really love it. And it must have come from experiences of the sort that you were just describing. Well, um, I'm going to get out my guitar. Incidentally, next time I have a garage sale, I'm going to get you here to sing. You know, I've given up playing at the garage sales. Yeah, but you could help me move some merchandise. Help me clean out my basement. I'll tell you, I have played some of the strangest places. I can't even tell you how many strange places I have played in my life. But they make good stories. <laughs> there at the table with my head in my hand A column of numbers I just did not understand You said, add these together, carry the two. Now, you, you can do this hard thing. You can do this hard thing. It's not easy, I know, but I believe that it's so. You can do this hard thing. Thank you. I, sure. I do love that song, and there are lots of kids at school right now who are lucky to have someone at the kitchen table with them helping helping in that way. Um, I've thought a lot lately about the fact that in this country there are millions and millions of kids who are yearning to be treasured and not measured. Uh, and I yeah. think that you know we, we can help a lot of young people by trying to be the adults who do exactly that. So I think one of the ways I've worked toward my deep gladness through the fears that have been with me all my life, really, um, is, is to do a lot of reflecting on an admonition that was common in the religious tradition in which I grew up, which was the counsel to be not afraid. And I remember when I was a teenager, fearful of things going on at school and whether I was, you know, popular or going to succeed in life or whatever. I remember having a lot of fear and hearing that that phrase in church and, and thinking, I'm not supposed to have fears. Be not afraid. What's wrong with me? I have fears. And then I realized after a few years and some maturity that be not afraid doesn't say you can't have fears. It says you don't need to be your fears. And that has become for me a very important point. It opened up for me the fact that we all have an inner landscape in which we stand, and that landscape has many locales in it. Um, There is one called fear, but there are other locales called faith, called love, Mm -hmm. called hope, called We're All in This Together, and and most of us want to make it work together. And, and so I think this whole thing began to get transformed for me by becoming more conscious that I had choices to make about where I stood 
in my inner landscape when I approached a fearful task. I mean, the best example that comes to hand is that I've spent a lot of time in my adult life standing up in front of very large audiences talking about things that were fairly upstream. And that's kind of scary. And I used to come so close to being paralyzed by fear when I was in that situation. I I never completely shut down, Hmm. but Mm -hmm. I could hear the shakiness in my own voice. And it wasn't a good feeling. And so I, I started doing what I call the work before the work. The work is to give a talk, but the work before the work is to understand where it is I want to stand as I give that talk. Mm -hmm. I was most fearful when the place I was standing was in a performance place, an Mm -hmm. ego place. Like, I I want to look good in front of these people. Mm -hmm. And and the fear that came with that would shut me down. But when I started realizing I could choose to stand in a place of service, I want to Mm -hmm. serve these people well, And I want to serve the ideas that I have to offer them well. That that really changed the dance for me, so that they were they were no longer just an audience uh, in, in front of which I was supposed to put on a show, but they were people that I was somehow in the world at that moment to serve in the in the best possible way. So I think for me, it's it's all been about finding solid ground on which to stand. And, and ego ground, performance ground, is not solid. It's shifting sand, and it's, and it's full of quicksand. Yeah. Uh, but, a, but a place of service or love or conviction or commitment offers solid ground. This really uh, resonates with me, this idea of where I stand. Um, and I'm thinking about an experience I had when I was just beginning to go out and sing in front of people. Um, I've been doing it for a while, but but I was still not very comfortable. Um, I started out such a shy person. I could barely mm. talk to people, let alone sing for them. So mm. uh, it wasn't something that I, I did naturally. And I, I asked a friend of mine who's this great massage therapist, and I said, Peggy, what do I do? I mean, you're so great about being embodied, you know? And she said, well, when you go out to sing next time, think about your feet. And I, I said, my feet? And she mm. said, yeah, think about your feet. I mean, think about where do you stand in this world? Who are you? Mm-hmm. When you push everything you're afraid of aside, when you push away all of that, and the real you, the truest you, is standing there in front of people, you know, who are you? And what is it you most want to give? What do you love in this world more than anything else? And then sing from there. And it was some of the most wise advice I think someone ever gave me. The thing, so I think about my feet a lot. You know, if I'm if I'm, you know, walking into a situation that um, is you know a little nervous for me or a, a new situation. Every time I go out to perform, every single time, bless you, Peggy. Um, I think about my feet. Mm-hmm. If I clear away everything I fear, and mm-hmm. I sing from my truest self, something shifts, something changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We can't, we can't always have happy feet, uh, (laughs) but we can, (laughs) we can, we we can have uh, feet that are solidly planted on the ground. It's so interesting to me, Carrie, that, you know, I came to that notion of ground on which to stand kind of metaphorically 
by reflecting on Be Not Afraid mm -hmm. and realizing that my inner landscape offers a variety of places on which to stand. And and you came about it quite literally through doing some body work and and stepping on stage. It's another form of courage, I think. I mean, I come. what comes to mind is Martin Luther saying, here I stand, I can do no other. Um, and, and the truth is, of course, that we all have choices about where we stand. I, I want to talk a little bit <clears throat> about this, the fear that has been laced through this, mm -hmm. so that, you know, we have a, an understanding of what fear is all about and, and how toxic it, it is in our, in our lives. When you sang a, a piece of, uh, you can do this hard thing a moment ago, it was interesting to me that the, the piece you chose was about learning to do math at the kitchen hmm. table with your dad. Yeah. Uh, because I've, in my work in higher education, I've been really fascinated by the fact that many years ago, probably 50 or 60 years ago, there was a prevailing theory about why girls and women were failing miserably at mathematics. Um, they obviously didn't have a father like you had, but they were failing <clears throat> uh, so badly that people had to come up with some sort of explanation and in a male-dominated patriarchal culture, the, the explanation was simple, although totally wrong-headed, and that was that women's brains were not structured in a way that allowed for computation. Hmm. Uh, mind you, I'm talking yeah. about what other people said. I'm not delivering that message. I don't want to get in trouble with anybody, <laughs> including you. Mm -hmm. um, but that was the, the prevailing, quote, wisdom, which shows how unwise wisdom can be. And then along came a, a, a pedagogue named Sheila Tobias, who said, folks, this is a r real no-brainer. Uh, girls and women fail at math because they are told from a very young age that girls aren't good at math. So they walk into classrooms paralyzed by this emotion called fear. Well, she and her colleagues, Sheila Tobias and her colleagues, started creating curricula that, that take emotions as seriously as they take the intellect because the human being comes as a whole package. You yeah. know, we don't come in separable parts. No. And once they started doing that, once they started doing simple, reassuring things in classrooms, um, offering the kind of solace and comfort that your father offered you at the kitchen table, that changed the whole dance around mathematics for generations now of girls and women in school. So for me, that that sort of raises a more general question. What is it that helps you? What is it that helps me? What is it that helps us deal with our, with our fears? Just as these kids who are going to school have to find some sort of resource to help them walk through that fear into the possibilities that schooling offers. Well, and I think that acknowledgement that, you know, that um, the be not afraid, it does not mean you aren't afraid. It means you, you don't, you are not that fear. You know, you mm. are experiencing it. Um, I think about all the times where um, being afraid felt like a wall that I was pushing up against. And um, I, I don't think that's an unusual experience going into something new. Mm -hmm. um, something that might feel 
like I don't know exactly how it's going to go or how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the things that help me, I think one of the things is just great mentors, hearing experiences of other people who have, you know, looked really hard at their fears and looked at what they loved and said, I'm stepping forward anyways. You know, those kinds of stories. And, and we get a lot of those kinds of stories on our uh, Growing Edge conversation page. People who are saying, yep, it's real. Yeah. Here it is. Yeah. That's right. and, and now I love so much that I'm stepping forward. So some of it is, um, you know, having that community, having those stories that inspire me and let me know I'm not alone in this kind of thing. I had this mentor once, and I, I remember talking to his name's Richard Kemmerer, a wonderful artist and professor, and he was one of the founders with his wife um, of the Gruenwald Guild. It's a camp for the arts with spiritual uh, grounding uh, out in Washington State. And I was lamenting to him that I didn't have any credentials. I didn't have a single piece of paper or credential to validate anything I was doing in my, in my professional mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. and he looked at me, uh, and uh, he was a very wry man, and, and he looked at me and said, Carrie, you know, I know you. And if you really believed that getting some piece of paper, some credential, some degree would help you do what you're doing in a more authentic, in a more deep and powerful way, you would move heaven and earth to get it. Yes. But mm-hmm. but you and I both know as artists that our art will always be our credentials. Mm-hmm. It will always mm-hmm. be our credentials. And I kind of took a deep breath and let out a big sigh with that and I kind of let go of that idea. I'm not qualified to do anything I'm doing. And then just did it. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a great gift he gave to me because I was dealing with that fraud factor, that fear. Mm -hmm. And that story, you know, his stories, Mm -hmm. his encouragement really, really stayed with me. Yeah. I I love the idea that you are your own credential. I I just think that's universally true. As you know, Carrie, I have this a 27-year-old granddaughter who lives not far from me in Madison, Wisconsin. Who's amazing. Whom I love. Uh, who I love. Yeah, she is amazing. Thank you. And I love her fiercely. <clears throat> and, she, you know, she, as most people in their late teens and early 20s a few years back, was really chewing on what should I major in that will give me a credential that will carry me forward. And I said, you know, it really doesn't matter what you major in um, as long as you develop the learning muscle, uh, which will help you in a lot of ways in life. But what's most important is who you are. Mm -hmm. And who you are is a really kind, compassionate, smart, insightful, caring, fully present person. And you're going to walk into that first job interview, and they're going to talk to you for 15 minutes, and they're going to say, we want you um, just because of your your presence and the way you show up in the world. And, of course, she just thought that was grandpa talk. But guess what? On her first job interview, that's exactly what happened. She applied for a job working with a, an agency that helps people on the edge of homelessness here in Madison. And four people at the table after 15 minutes said, we want you. We, we can we can stop our, our search. And it's, it's, it's kept happening for her. I, in my own life, and of course I've told my granddaughter these stories, 
Um, although I think only now is she starting to believe them. Um, <laughs> I, I have not been credentialed, as they say, for, for anything I've ever done. I, I've, I've never written a book for which I had a credential. Um, my last book was Healing the Heart of Democracy. I have no degree in political science. I think I may have taken one course along the way. Prior to that, I wrote a book called The Courage to Teach, which apparently has been used pretty widely in education. I never took an education course in my life, and I can barely stand to read the literature because I find so much of it so tedious. I, I wrote a book out of my own struggle to be a teacher in the case of The Courage to Teach, and I wrote a book about democracy out of my own struggle to understand what it means to be a citizen in these times, a struggle that continues on for me. And, and I don't think any of that would have been possible without the mentors I had along the way. Yes. Um, I've asked so many folks, oh, tell me about your great mentors. And they will always say some version of the same thing I say about my mentors, which is, my mentors, my great mentors, were people who saw in me more than I saw in myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they, didn't, they didn't say, well, in order to you know, get here or there, you need something extra because you're not enough. <laughs> Instead, they said, you're enough. All you have to do is find ways to express that um, and, and yeah. to trust yourself in that expression. Um, you, you are your own credential. I, I love, I love that way of, of talking about it. Um, yeah. I think, you know, I think I'm also at the age and I'll let you pick it up from here where the mentors stopped coming a few decades ago, hmm. although I was blessed with a long string of them and very lucky to have been so blessed. But I began realizing a couple of decades ago, it was time for me to turn around and mentor the the younger generation or whoever yes. was in my reach from that generation. Does that ring bells with you too? Yeah. You know, and, and I've seen that with you and, and uh, I love that uh, even though your, your newest book is called on the brink of everything, grace, gravity, and getting old, it's really uh, applies to anyone at any point of their life. And I know um, people in their twenties and thirties who have really, been moved by Let Your Life Speak, by this new book, um, because it speaks to something uh, really human, and uh, and it speaks in a way that a really fine mentor uh, speaks to these issues, uh, saying exactly what you're, what you're talking about, you know, you are enough, that you are on the brink mm -hmm. of everything, and you're mm -hmm. enough to take that next step. Um, I have a, a couple mentor stories, you know, one... When, uh, when I was in high school, so we go back to the school idea, but when I was in high school, I was writing songs already. I, you know, I was 13, I picked up the guitar, I learned three chords, I started writing my first drippy songs, mostly about boys, I think. Um, but, um, but then through high school, I was writing songs, and um, I had this wonderful English teacher, Mr. Van Young, and he had heard somehow that I, I wrote songs. And this was back before standardized testing because he could do something like this, something very creative. He saw in me something. He saw something in me mm -hmm. that I hadn't seen myself yet. And he said, I'll give you um, 
I'll give you this, this deal. Instead of writing essays or taking tests for all the different sections of this class, you can write a song hmm. to respond to it. But, hmm. you know, the first catch is that you have to prove to be in that song that you understand the material uh, through the lyrics and through the music. And I thought, wow, this is great. And then he said, the second catch is that you have to sing it for the whole class. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, I, and again, this was that point in my life where I could barely talk to people, let alone sing for them. And I took the deal. And it was so exciting. I wrote songs that entire semester, and every time I went in to sing them for the class, my hands were shaking. And at the end of the class, I had a collection of songs that he said, okay, we're going to get somebody from the theater department, and we're going to have you sing all the songs in a, you know, like a little mini concert or something for the class. And it, and it was really amazing because my classmates were so incredibly supportive, more appreciative and supportive than I ever imagined they would be. Hmm. He changed my yeah. life. Mm -hmm. he, he changed me life because he saw something in me. I didn't see myself yet. My friend Bill Harley tells a great story. Bill Harley's a wonderful songwriter and storyteller. He says his mentor told him, Bill, you don't want to be the best singer-songwriter. And he said, I don't. <laughs> and he said, no, what you want to be is the only Bill Harley. <laughs> and when he told me that story, it was like Mr. Van Young. He was saying, I see something in you. You don't have to try to be somebody else. The only Carrie mm -hmm. Newcomer, the only mm -hmm. Parker Palmer, the only ah, each person who's listening to this podcast. You know, right. like, you are enough. And in this next scary step of the growing edge, you have everything you need. You're right where you need to be, and you have everything you need to step forward. Yeah, I think that's, uh, those are beautiful stories. And uh, I, I think that's one of the great gifts that, uh, elders can give the young, but at the same time, as one who's decidedly in the generation of the elders, there's a gift in there for us as well. Um, I think a lot about the psychologist Eric Erickson, who developed these stages of of adult life, of mm -hmm. adult growth. Yeah, and he says that in old age, um, uh, we have a basic choice to make between uh, what he calls stagnation and generativity. And mm. of course, stagnation is something none of us want, although sadly, you see a lot of elders sinking into various forms of stagnation. Generativity to Erickson didn't mean just be creative. It, it literally meant reach out to the younger generation, hence generativity, and um, offer them the kinds of a kind of gift that you we've both been talking about elders offering us back in the day, yes. yeah. and when you do that, of course you experience the return of that gift um, in in this electricity that arises when the younger and older get connected like the poles of a battery, and yeah. the, the the field of energy starts to flow. I find it enormously energizing to have those kinds of relationships with younger people and to watch them flower in ways that, um, you know, I, I, I can engage in my own form of flowering, 
but it's going to be more like the well-established oak tree than, than the new shoot coming up green in, in the spring. Um, and and it's, it, it's a joy and a, a life-giving experience for me uh, to uh, offer to younger people the kind of gift that was offered to me when I was their age. Which is so important for, I think, all of us, even at, at different ages, that we are... We are mentors as well as as students, you know, that Mm -hmm. uh, even those students in that long ago high school classroom were a little bit, you know, they were kind of being mentors to me in a way because Mm -hmm. they were so kind to me and so Mm -hmm. uh, supportive in a way that I wasn't expecting. Even that young, they were they were already mentoring each other. Yes. And uh, but but what you're talking about also, you know, that being able to look at this point in my life and look back and say, part of what I have to offer are those experiences and being able to share those and to see in other people, people who are maybe um, younger than myself or coming up in their careers or in their life experiences uh, into new things and, and reflecting back, I see, I see you and there's something shining there. So often people don't know. There's what's that Thomas Merton quote about people walk around shining like the sun and they don't realize it. Right. I have no way of telling them that they're all shining like the sun. Yes. Fourth and Walnut in Louisville. Exactly. And and it's just this, it's true. And um, so as I think one of those things as we get older is being able to recognize that and say, do you have any idea how much you shine? You know, mm-hmm. like your granddaughter, you know, mm-hmm. and saying, "Yeah, I see it," and yeah, exactly, and being able to say it to uh, to people, you know, out loud. It's kind of an interesting thing when you say it out loud to someone who's not expecting it. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you know that polite thing, and and you know, it, it it makes for interesting like party conversation instead of like, "What do you do?" Da-da-da-da. Like, "Wow, yeah. do you yeah. shine?" Then yeah. tell me yeah. all about yourself. You yeah, know? because there are millions of people in the world who yearn for one thing, and that's to be seen for who they are, and and they don't they don't get much of it. You know, I want to. We need to move toward closing out know, a, a conversation that could go on forever. But yeah. I just before we do that, one more reference to the good folks who have been uh, writing in such moving and heartfelt comments on our conversation page on yes. the Growing Edge website. I just want to say again that I think in such an interesting way, people on that page are mentoring each other, you know, not by giving advice, not by giving counsel, not by saying, well, if I were in your situation, here's what I do, all of which is very off-putting, but instead by telling their story and trusting others with their story and people responding to those stories with real appreciation and, and, and real understanding that there's a community of conversation going on here where we really do learn that we're all in this together. And even though none of us has the solution to the problem of fear, for example, Mm -hmm. the one we've been discussing today, or the answer to how it is you move through fear toward your excitement, somehow sharing our struggles together is the answer to that, to realize that we're not alone in this. We really are all in it together. So just to wrap things up, 
because we have to, not because we want to. Um, <laughs> let me. <laughs> we have talked for hours on these topics before. Confining it to a podcast has been an interesting growing edge for us too. It's like we could talk for days. And, yeah, especially and we for ha- two and we wordsmiths. Have. Yeah, we we <laughs> <laughs> we spent our life, you know, putting out words, so it's hard to hard to stop. Okay. But um, I want to ask you for a couple of takeaways from this conversation. Well, let's, uh, should I first like uh, restate the question and then we'll talk about a couple takeaways for both of us? Oh, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, The question of the month is, it's September, the start of a school year. For many kids, it's an exciting, growing edge moment and scary at the same time. When you felt afraid on your growing edge of your adult life, what has helped you walk into your fear and toward what excites you? What helps you to keep fear from blocking your next steps toward your deep gladness? So a couple takeaways. Um, you know, I, I, I would say that, you know, our conversation about uh, mentorship and teachers and um, having a community of people that support you, that, that inspire you, that see you, you know, I think that, I think that's an important takeaway and the other takeaway is that, you know, fear is what it is, that, you know, that idea that courage is not about being fearless. It's about loving something so much. Mm-hmm. You take the next step anyways. So those are the two takeaways that I'm kind of walking away with those, mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. things in this conversation today. Yeah, well, I think mine are similar or certainly overlapped. You know, one is this notion that's been, become very important to me that wholeness has nothing to do with perfection. Yes. Wholeness is about embracing your imperfections and including them in the sum and total of your life, which really gives you the grace not only to embrace yourself, but to embrace a lot of other people as well. It, it helps you feel more at home in your own skin and more at home on the face of the earth. And I think the second takeaway from this conversation is simply something that's been happening inside of me as we've talked. And that's the rise of deep gratitude for the people who gave me the gift of mentoring in my life. Mm -hmm. And gratitude always takes one in a good direction as long as we remember that these are great gifts we've received from our mentors from those who've befriended us, and that the only way to keep a gift like that alive is to pass it along to others. So we'll wrap up our September question of the month and look forward to what awaits us at the turn of the month in October. Uh, yes, and, and I hope everyone will come back and visit us and check out the podcast uh, as we explore the October question of the month. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker J. Palmer. Don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation too. And now we've got a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and to bring more voices into this conversation. 
All the music you heard in today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer, and much gratitude to Gary Walters for arranging and performing the song The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and oh my gosh, does she shine.